A pioneering female CEO has been promoting Bitcoin in Afghanistan since 2013 and sees it needed in her home country now more than ever. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. It is time to finally get in Gladstein's newest piece from last week on Bitcoin in Afghanistan. Gladstein's ongoing series, digging into the lives and uses of Bitcoin for the people who truly need it more than anyone to gain freedom in an increasingly unfree world, unfortunately, is honestly one of the best in my opinion it's the message that we need to get out as far as possible this is all about freedom and this show is where you will hear all of the best in bitcoin made audible and where i guy swan will explain and explore all the incredible concepts and history around this system what makes it work why it works why it's important and how it's going to change the world I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anyone else you know. And we are going to get right into the read really fast. A quick thank you to our sponsors, the lovely Bitcoin savings plan built for Bitcoiners by Bitcoiners, swanbitcoin.com. No simpler way to save in future money than buying on a regular basis automatically and automatically withdrawing to your keys. And for those who are looking for the full service, they want that walkthrough. Everything to get you started, learn how to use your hardware wallet. Swan Private is the concierge service you are looking for. Check out all of their great services at swanbitcoin.com guy. The best time to start stacking sats was yesterday. The second best time is right now. And then, of course, the hardware wallet you need to secure your hard money savings, the Bitbox 02. And, of course, all of the other great security tools from the Shift Crypto team. Bitcoin and cryptography engineers, they have, they've, these guys have literally built a digital vault to keep the hackers, the trackers, the tyrants, and computer viruses away from your Bitcoin stash. It is simple to use and set up. The Bitbox O2 is the digital vault for your digital keys. Go to guyswan, swan with two N's, dot com slash bitbox, and don't forget to use code guy for a 5% discount on everything in your cart. And with that, let's get into today's read, and it's titled Finding Financial Freedom in Afghanistan A pioneering female CEO has been promoting Bitcoin in Afghanistan since 2013 and sees it needed in her home country now more than ever. By Alex Gladstein Roya Mahbub, the first female Afghan tech CEO, one of Time's most influential people in the world, and one of the first entrepreneurs to introduce Bitcoin to Afghanistan, was seven years old when the Taliban first took over her country and invaded her hometown in 1996. One day she was playing with her bicycle in her front yard, wearing her favorite red scarf, when a bunch of armed men showed up in a jeep 
screaming at her father in a language she did not understand. After that, she was not allowed to go outside and play anymore. My family took my scarf away and forced me to wear a black dress, she said, just like all the other girls. A few days later, the Taliban returned. Its members rolled down her street, armed to the teeth, and went home by home, going into each house by force, looking for any signs of books or television sets. If they found any books, they would take them out to the front yard and set them on fire, Maboob said. If they found any VHS tapes, they would set those on fire too. She said the most jarring part was that she could no longer go to school. Instead, she was forced to go to the mosque and study the Quran and sit through lectures from a mullah who could not even read. For her, all paths to knowledge had been closed and all bridges to the outside world had been burned down. Shortly after the Taliban conquered Afghanistan, Mahbub's family fled to Iran. She told me that her father was a secular leader and that it had become too dangerous for him to raise a family in a new land of religious fundamentalism. She grew up a stranger in a strange land and as a second-class citizen. But over time, she got used to Iran, and when her father decided to move the family back to Afghanistan in 2003, she was terrified. When she finally arrived back in the city of Herat one night, however, she remembers things were surprisingly calm. Iranian state TV had portrayed Afghanistan as a place of death and destruction, but Roya found her home region stabilized. Now a teenager, she was still forced to wear a hijab, but she found the restrictions much looser than under the Taliban. Yes, there were foreign troops everywhere, but compared to today, she said, there were many new economic opportunities and the security situation was much safer. There was a sense of hope in the air. Part 1. Discovering the Internet One of the things that intrigued Mahbub most about her new life in Herat was the Internet Café. Living in Iran, she had never been allowed to go to a library or bookstore. Her schooling was limited and based mainly on Islam. Getting other kinds of information was a struggle. Upon arriving in Herat, she heard about a shop that had small boxes that could communicate with each other. If one typed into them, she heard, they would provide lots of information. One could even talk to other people through electronic messages, but she said women were not allowed in this kind of shop. One day, she said, I forced one of my male cousins to take me inside. The cafe owner would not let them in, but she was persistent, and one early morning he relented. She fell in love with the computer immediately. She learned that the United Nations had started a local computer course for women, and the teacher told Mahbub that if she could get 15 girls to enroll, they could start a class. She rallied her cousins and friends to make it happen. After a six-month course, she was hooked on the web. The next year in 2004, Mahbub entered Herat University and took up computer science. Over the next four years, she learned how to code, and her desire to change the world through technology grew. Unknowingly, Mahbub had tapped into the philosophy of a group of coders who were thousands of miles away, the cypherpunks. They believed that the best way to change society is through technology, 
not through government. Their philosophy is to innovate without permission. In this sense, Mahbub was one of them. She continued her studies, eventually working her way up to coordinator of the university's IT department, where she helped build the campus network architecture. She learned English, mainly to communicate with the teachers, and started working on the Silk Road Project, a NATO initiative that helped all the key universities in Afghanistan get linked up with fiber optics. In 2009, Mahbub met with Paul Brinkley, the U.S. Deputy Undersecretary for Defense. The Americans wanted to build a tech incubator in Herat. By that time, Mahbub had helped create an association of young girls interested in technology and software. According to Mahbub, Brinkley asked her, Why not start a company? We can hire you. Part 2. Mahbub's Citadel with contracts from the U.S. government and multilateral organizations, Mahbub built Citadel Software. Why the name? In Herat, Mahbub said, there's a beautiful citadel that looms over the rest of the city. It is impressive, even breathtaking. Mahbub said that her company wanted to be a castle of software programming and a place where women could safely pursue their careers. Little did she know, she was already on the same page as many Bitcoin users who often talk of the idea of a citadel where they can retreat into a space of freedom without external control. I'll see you in the citadels, says the popular Bitcoin podcaster Stefan Levera at the end of every one of his 350-plus episodes. Mahbub found her own citadel and became the first female tech CEO in Afghanistan. To launch, she used some of the money she had saved while working at the university and for the Afghan Ministry of Education. Of course, she had less access to commercial finance than men, but the meeting with Brinkley was her breakthrough. The U.S. government would pay Citadel to consult on the strengths, weaknesses, and different approaches to building technology systems in Afghanistan. After a few months, Citadel also started to win contracts from the Afghan government. At the end of 2011, an Italian businessman saw a documentary about Citadel. He was so moved that he reached out and eventually financed the company, giving Mahbub private investment by the end of 2012. Citadel was 85% female, Mahbub said. For every woman at Citadel, this was her first job. Because it was mostly a female environment, Conservative families were more comfortable with allowing their daughters to work there as opposed to at male-dominated organizations. At the same time, Mahbub started a platform called Woman in X, which helped Afghan women in high school and college work from home, getting paid based on their contributions. Work ranged from uploading short videos to writing articles or translating documents. At first, Roya paid her employees and the Woman in X contributors in cash, the problem was that the women wanted to send the money to family and pay vendors in different parts of the country. They used the Hawala system, an 8th century money transfer process that relied on brokers and a web of trusted intermediaries. This ancient platform seemed dated and slow to Mahbub and the women, many of whom already had Nokia cell phones and had started to create and use their own Facebook accounts. Even worse, sometimes the money did not make it through the Hawala system, 
and it was hard to verify that the whole amount reached the recipient. So Maboub researched the idea of mobile money. As it turned out, cell phone-based payment systems like M-Pesa, which worked so well in Kenya, never took off in Afghanistan. PayPal was still not available because of U.S. sanctions, and the women did not have bank accounts, so she could not wire them money. The women had to have their father's or husband's permission to open an account, and this was often not granted. Maboub's employees wanted digital control over their time and earnings. If I gave them cash, she said, their fathers or husbands or brothers might find out and take it away. Part 3. Enter Bitcoin. In early 2013, Maboub's Italian business partner told her about Bitcoin. He said it was a new kind of money that could be sent from phone to phone without a bank account. Unlike the local Afghani currency, which was steered by the government, Bitcoin floated on the open market. When Maboub first learned about Bitcoin, it was trading at around $13. By the early summer of 2013, it broke $70. At first, I did not think the girls would trust Bitcoin, Maboub said. It was too hard to understand. But her business partner encouraged her and said, Let's try it. What do we have to lose? And so Maboub taught her employees and contractors how to install Bitcoin wallets on their phones how to receive funds, and how to back up their savings. If the girls ever wanted to spend the Bitcoin, Maboub or her sister Ileha would buy it back from them with cash. I began to understand Bitcoin as a digital upgrade of the Hoala system, Maboub said. She and the women liked to get paid in Bitcoin because they could keep it on their phone, and no one needed to know how much money they had. The girls were happy to finally have a money that the men in their lives could not take from them, Maboub said. It gave them security, privacy, and peace of mind. Eleha started a business that bought Bitcoin from the girls for cash when they needed to purchase things. Some shops in Herat even started accepting Bitcoin as a means of payment for clothing. During the late summer and fall of 2013, Bitcoin's price skyrocketed to more than $1,000. Citadel had put all of its cash assets into Bitcoin. Business was booming, and the women could not believe their new wealth and economic freedom. Mabub felt invincible. But in November 2013, Bitcoin crashed, losing 60% of its value relative to the U.S. dollar. Citadel's assets were decimated. Worse yet, its employees' savings evaporated. Our competitors went on the attack, Maboub said, arguing that Citadel was run by frauds who stole money from young girls. Maboub decided to offer to buy back the Bitcoin from all of her employees and contractors, more than 150 in all, at pre-crash prices. To salvage what remained of Citadel, Maboub converted almost all of the company's Bitcoin to U.S. dollars. 2014 and 2015 were hard years for Citadel and Maboub. She had to lay off a lot of employees, and women in X lost popularity. She did not close shop, but she did scale down the business, giving her more time and energy to help young women learn vocational skills through software. In 2014, she launched a nonprofit organization called 
Digital Citizen Fund, or DCF, to educate women on how to use computer technology. By 2016, DCF became her primary focus. By then, she said, many Afghans had lost their trust in Bitcoin. But I could not forget its potential. It stuck in my mind and would not go away. Later in 2016, she created a curriculum through Digital Citizen Fund to teach women across many schools how to use Bitcoin, set up a wallet, and understand how the network's blockchain ledger system worked. As of August 2021, thousands of women in the Herat area have learned about Bitcoin and attained more financial freedom because of Roya and the DCF. Roya said the girls liked that they could receive, save, and spend Bitcoin without needing a bank account. It only took a few minutes to set up a wallet and write down a seed phrase to back up their savings in case they lost their phone. They could send the money anywhere in the world in minutes. The volatility, she said, was the price you had to pay for the rest of these benefits. Perhaps most powerfully, Bitcoin could not discriminate by gender. Despite the 2013 crash, the technology was too interesting to ignore. Part 4. A Refugee's Escape A few of the women did keep their Bitcoin from 2013. One of them was Lale Farzan. Mahbub told me that Farzan worked for her as a network manager, and in her time at Citadel, earned 2.5 Bitcoin. At today's exchange rate, Farzan's earnings would now be worth more than 100 times the average Afghan annual income. In 2016, Farzan received threats from the Taliban and other conservatives in Afghanistan because of her work with computers. When they attacked her house, she decided to escape leaving with her family and selling their home and assets to pay brokers to take them on the treacherous road to Europe. Like thousands of other Afghan refugees, Farzan and her family traveled by foot, car, and train thousands of miles through Iran and Turkey, finally making it to Germany in 2017. Along the way, dishonest middlemen and common thieves stole everything they brought with them, including their jewelry and cash. At one point, their boat crashed, and more belongings sank to the bottom of the Mediterranean. It's a tragic story familiar to so many refugees. But in this case, something was different. Through it all, Farzan was able to keep her Bitcoin, because she hid the seed to her Bitcoin wallet on a piece of tiny, innocuous-looking paper. Thieves could not take what they could not find. Once Farzan got to Germany, she sold some of the Bitcoin for $2,500, making 10 times her initial earnings in dollar terms. Bitcoin helped her start a new life, reflecting on the countless refugees in recent history and thinking about how most of them could only bring the clothes on their back with them as they fled. Mahbub thinks Bitcoin could be a difference maker for so many. As another example, Eleha saved some of the Bitcoin she made back in 2013 and held on to it until 2017, 
eventually spending it on her college tuition when she was admitted to Cornell University. For the girls who were patient, Bitcoin became an enormous treasure. Today, Roya Maboub says she uses Bitcoin as a savings account and as an investment for the future. The Bitcoin she obtained in 2013 for around $100 has increased in value by 500 times. She often uses it to send money from New York, where she spends a lot of time, to friends and family and vendors in Afghanistan. In the past two years, she said, many Hawala system brokers have started to learn about Bitcoin. She explained to me that in Herat, there are more and more people willing to buy Bitcoin in exchange for cash, and that in Kabul, it is even more prevalent. The data supports Mahbub's observations. When adjusted for purchasing power and internet penetration, the firm Chain Analysis reports that Afghanistan has the seventh highest peer-to-peer -peer exchange trade volume in the world. Mahbub said that as Bitcoin becomes easier to use, it will get more adoption. Since 2013, she said, wallets have improved in a staggering way with regard to usability and design. The Digital Citizen Fund plans to continue offering classes to Afghan women and girls today on how to use Bitcoin. Thousands of graduates, Mahbub said, have built the knowledge for economic sovereignty that they would not otherwise have. Mahbub does not see Bitcoin as a Western innovation or a Silicon Valley creation, but rather as a global tool of financial freedom that can empower women. So many girls and women in Afghanistan do not have an ID or a bank account, she said. Bitcoin gives them power. They can learn how to mine it, code it, or trade it, she said. When they earn money, they can convert that into radical self-reliance and power that they can use to escape the traditional role of Afghan women in the home. Mahbub does not know if Bitcoin's mysterious inventor Satoshi Nakamoto realized how powerful it would become. To her, it is the most world-changing invention since the internet. It's more than just an investment, she said. It is a revolution. Part 5. Economic Collapse Today, Mahbub said, Bitcoin is more important than ever for Afghanistan. In the wake of the fall of Kabul to the Taliban, Afghans are in dire economic straits. Already before the transition, as many as 14 million Afghans did not have enough food to eat. 2.5 million people had already fled the country. Now, bank accounts have been frozen, economic activity has slowed, and remittances have been halted. ATMs are empty, after withdrawals spiked from hundreds per day to thousands per day, and financial exchanges are shuttered. The Afghani has fallen to a record low, falling 5% in a single day last week to reach as much as 100 per dollar. A month ago, the rate was 78 per dollar, and 10 years ago, 58 per dollar. Normally propped up by a flow of dollars, those shipments sustaining the Afghani have stopped arriving. Further exacerbating the situation, the U.S. government has pressured the International Monetary Fund, or IMF, to stop the release to Afghanistan of $460 million of special drawing rights, a kind of credit that can be exchanged for hard currency. 
and has confiscated more than 99% of the country's foreign reserves, which sit in New York. The German government has suspended $300 million in aid. The World Bank announced that it is freezing its aid mechanism, which has committed more than $18 billion to Afghanistan. Development assistance, which reached $4.2 billion in 2019, could trickle to zero. Instead of being supported with aid, the Afghan economy could be strangled by sanctions. Western Union and MoneyGram, two of the world's biggest money transmitters, have cut off services, and websites like GoFundMe have been blocked from fundraising efforts for, quote, compliance reasons. Remittances are a key lifeline for the country, making up nearly 4% of the economy, or around $800 million annually. But now, Afghans are in the cold, greeted by these kinds of statements when they try to receive money from abroad. Western Union understands the urgent need people have to receive funds, and we are committed to resuming operations for our customers in Afghanistan as conditions permit. We will continue to monitor the situation closely, and we will keep all appropriate stakeholders apprised of further developments. WasalPay is a service that Afghans use to top up their phones, but the company's CEO is inundated with requests and has run out of cash. He does not know how long he can stay in business. Osef Khadami, who is working on a World Bank project to digitize payments in Afghanistan, says all progress has stopped since the Taliban took over. They might just destroy it, he told MIT Technology Review. They might just burn all of these technologies. Who knows? Mahbub pointed out that while the Taliban could crush local businesses or shut down financial modernization plans, they cannot stop Bitcoin. Afghanistan's former central bank head, Ajmal Almadi, who fled during the fall, has predicted capital controls, currency devaluation, price inflation, and tough times for the poor. He said the Taliban have access to just 0.1% to 0.2% of the country's savings. This, combined with the slow remittance and aid flows, will crash the currency and cause prices to rise. Ahmadi said that there are already reports of wheat prices doubling in Kabul. There could even be a demonetization event if the Taliban finds the existing currency installed by the American-backed government in 2002 as not Islamic enough. After all, when the Taliban came to power in 1996, its economic chief declared the legacy currency worthless and halted production of new notes. In this dire climate, experts are predicting hyperinflation and an economy that could contract as much as 20%. People holding Afghanis are trying to exchange them for dollars or goods, driving prices up more and more. In a country where only 10% to 15% of the population has a bank account, a quick erosion of the Afghanis' purchasing power would be devastating. Some say that opium production or intervention from Russia or China could prevent economic collapse, but Ahmadi called that an over-optimistic scenario. This is always how it is, Mahbub says. The poor suffer, no matter what the elites do. Part 6. Bitcoin Fixes This 
Mahmoud said that in the chaos of this month's transition, her parents fled Afghanistan but were not able to bring their money with them. Earlier this year, she flew to Kabul to see them. She tried telling her mother to start converting some of her Afghanis into Bitcoin, but her mother is traditional. The process seemed unnecessary and she procrastinated. Mahbub wishes she had been more persuasive. Had her parents put at least some of their money into Bitcoin, they could have taken their savings with them when they fled. Bitcoin fixes this, Mahbub said. She thinks Bitcoin could have helped many other Afghans over the past few weeks, whether they fled and needed to take their savings with them, or stayed and needed an alternative to the Afghani, and remains committed to teaching as many people as possible about it in the coming years. She told me that she is negotiating with the Taliban to try and keep her educational programs going. Giving up, she said, is not an option. Mahbub has already spoken to Taliban spokesperson Timothy Weeks about keeping technology and finance classes for girls going in the Herat area. Weeks is a former professor from Australia who was kidnapped while teaching in Afghanistan and beaten and jailed for three and a half years in a small cell. In 2019, he and an American prisoner were freed in exchange for three Taliban commanders. Upon his release, he seemed to have developed Stockholm Syndrome and has sided with his former captors, now going by the name Jibrail and running point for the Taliban on digital issues. He is savvy enough to use apps like Signal. Mahbub said he seems open to her ideas. One objective would be to try and convince Afghan Islamic scholars that Bitcoin is halal. Mahbub thinks that an approach framing Bitcoin like a digital hawala system based in gold, concepts that have been a part of Afghan society for thousands of years, could work. Religious scholars currently criticize Bitcoin as gambling, but, she said, it depends on how you frame it. Mahbub has helped many young women, including some of the stars of Afghanistan's female youth robotics team, which she founded and mentored to worldwide fame, get out in the past few weeks. Five members just arrived in Mexico, but millions of young women remain in the country and will need ways to connect with the outside world. Moving forward, Mahbub does not want to retreat to a passive state of simply condemning the Taliban from abroad. She experienced its rule and knows how brutal it is for women's rights, but said, We have to work on the ground and push for action, not just write articles criticizing the new government. In negotiations so far, Taliban leaders have told her team that in Herat, women will be able to continue to go to school once female-specific buildings are established. Data is hard to trust in Afghanistan, but estimates say that out of a country of nearly 40 million, there are around 9 million internet users, with close to a quarter of the population online, and 90% living on less than $2 per day. Mahbub said that these numbers seem low, and said that a much higher percentage of people, at least young people, have internet on their phones, and that a much higher percentage make more than a few dollars per day, especially through side jobs. Most of the young generation, she said, have cell phones with internet access, and the Taliban is allowing people to remain online, at least for now. Mahbub's goal is to convince the Taliban to allow women to participate in the digital economy. Bitcoin, she said, is a big part of this plan. Part 7 
a legacy of corruption. Mahbub said that over the past 20 years, Afghanistan has seen many achievements, especially with regard to women's rights, elections, and education. The number of Afghan girls attending first grade rose from zero in 2001 under the Taliban to more than 60% in the past decade. But the government's fatal sin, she said, was corruption. She blames the collapse on the, quote, selfish behavior of men like former President Ashraf Ghani and his predecessors. The elite only thought about their own interests, Mahbub said. Ghani taught at top American universities, worked at the World Bank, gave a TED Talk, wrote a book on fixing failed societies, and started an NGO called the Institute for State Effectiveness, but then lost Kabul to the Taliban and fled the city, allegedly stealing $170 million in cash along the way. Afghanistan hosted the longest war in American history, leaving more than 240,000 people dead. But the operation has faced very little scrutiny. U.S. lawmakers never actually voted to declare war in Afghanistan, and the $2.2 trillion cost of the war was only questioned once in 20 years by members of the U.S. Senate Finance Committee. The U.S. faces an astonishing $10 trillion in debt from 20 years of forever wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. $2 trillion in debt financing to pay for the wars, $6.5 trillion to be paid in interest by 2050, and $2 trillion for expected expenses related to benefits to 4 million war veterans. Much of the war money was wasted, as hundreds of millions of dollars of equipment has been destroyed or is now under Taliban control. Mahbub is critical of the way the West supported Afghanistan. Tens of billions of dollars was invested in her country, but little was actually given to Afghans, with most given to American NGOs and companies to do implementation, bringing that money back to the U.S. instead of having it soak into the local society. Out of the $144 billion that was invested in Afghanistan since 2002, an astonishing 80-90% to 90% ended up back in the U.S. economy siphoned through a, quote, complex ecosystem of defense contractors, Washington banditry, and aid contractors, according to foreign policy. Who benefited most from the war? Undeniably, the lives of Mahbub and millions of other Afghan women improved. But the country's elites, like Ghani and the military-industrial complex led by companies paid billions by the U.S. government such as Fleur and Amentum, profited most handsomely. A cynical interpretation would be that the war operation was only sustained for so long to keep funds going to certain companies and interest groups and not to build serious lasting infrastructure, explaining why the government in Kabul fell so quickly. One former U.S. soldier said that, quote, The Afghan army wasn't real. The Afghan civil authority was never real. They never collected taxes. There were no courts outside of police robbing people. None of it ever existed. It was just a big jobs program funded by American money, and the moment it looked like the money would go away, everyone went home. Mahbub thinks there could be a different kind of future, where Afghanistan is actually independent, and not just something so dependent 
that it collapses without foreign support. Part 8. A New Chapter Mahbub said that before the fall of Kabul, she was thinking about reducing her time with her nonprofit activities and going back to working entirely on the business side. But now she realizes that education is more important than ever. With everything that has happened in the last few weeks, I can see that our fight has just begun, she said. We need to hold the Taliban accountable. Even with all that she has accomplished, Mahbub said that she regrets not doing more Bitcoin education. If we had done more, she said, so many more could have benefited. She vowed to double down in this area, telling me that in digital citizen fund programs moving forward, financial literacy and being your own bank will be key components and Bitcoin will be a core part of the curriculum. Democracy is over, Maboob said. That chapter has closed, and a new chapter has started. We are upset, yes, but we will not give up. I'm going to keep fighting. The women are going to make it, she promised. And that closes out Alex Gladstein's Finding Financial Freedom in Afghanistan. Let's take a quick break for our sponsor, and we'll hit Guy's take on this piece. You know, sovereignty is about not being beholden to someone else. It is about being fully in control of your life, your choices, your wealth, and your future. Holding your own keys in Bitcoin is how you get that for your wealth. That is what makes Bitcoin revolutionary. The Bitbox O2 and the reason I have I, I wanted them as my sponsor is because it is an excellent hardware wallet for exactly that job. You know, we live in a really uncertain world right now. The best thing you can do to protect yourself is to just get your wealth into your own hands in all of the ways that that is possible. The Bitbox O2 is really intuitive. It is a secure hardware wallet. And it's really great, I say this, it's great for both someone new to Bitcoin that is holding their own keys for the first time, but it's also really good for all, everybody like me who wants all the bells and whistles. Tour support, they want to connect to their own node, use it with your favorite wallet like Spectre, whatever, coin control, etc. All the great stuff. Check them out at Guy Swan. Swan's got two ends, by the way. GuySwan.com slash Bitbox. That takes you straight to the Shift Crypto website. And discount code GUY gets you 5% off everything in your cart. Grab yourself a Bitbox, maybe a steel wallet, some extra backup cards, or whatever you want. 5% off with coupon code GUY. All right. That closes out another in Alex Gladstein's Freedom Series, I guess you could call it. Um, uh, but he has just been killing it with these. This one's, it's so crazy. You know, you hear about... It's, it's amazing the context that a story and a single person will put uh, the, the situation in Afghanistan in. You know, you'll hear about general treatment or how, uh, how, how things are going, but when you see how it, it, it creates a, a, or it changes the life and how someone interacts with their home, with the people around them, and specifically what they can and cannot do it's incredible to me to see what an impact Bitcoin and the internet have been on these sorts of situations over the last 20 years. 
I mean, the opening of this story was just crazy. They went home to home, just, just, just looking for books and televisions and destroying them. Destroying them so that there was essentially, you know, like you go back 500, 600 years in history, and the religious authority was the authority because everyone was illiterate and there was no other way to get access to information. And so you had religious governments. You had uh, authoritative governments that were the quote-unquote the, the spokesman for God or whatever it was. You were taught by them. They were the center of everything in politics and your whole world. They were the authority and you were their servant. Because obviously you serve the religion. You, you serve the Lord and this is your Lord's representative. It's literally an attempt to keep that in a world in which technology has moved hundreds of years past that is to destroy all of the books, to destroy the televisions, to destroy the computers, to make it so that women and other people cannot read. They're not allowed to be taught to read so that you're stuck in the 1500s. You're stuck in the 1500s so that that religious authority can remain intact because it is based, it is based entirely upon keeping the people the average person, ignorant, stupid, and dependent. And this is sort of fundamental, right? If you want power, any government agency, like everybody who wants power and control wants to have their, the people controlled to be ignorant and dependent. That is, that is their whole job because if you are independent and intelligent, you don't need them. And I don't even think this has to be deliberate in a sense of, oh, I'm, you know, they're sitting in a back room smoking a cigar thinking, how do we make people dumber? It's just enough that the incentives are aligned. And at the end of a hundred years of mandatory government schooling, it's the lowest common denominator of teaching people propaganda and not how to actually get along in the real world. So everybody's still financially dependent. Everyone still, you know, gets out of school not knowing how to, not knowing how to read a healthcare contract. Oh, well, that's, that's great for all of the people who are now managing our healthcare system. Same with taxes, same with getting a job uh, or running a business. God forbid anybody knows how to manage their own money and run a business and be productive because government needs workers. Government needs employees, not, not independent businesses that can move around and can leave the country if things aren't friendly to them. And here you have the same thing in a completely different paradigm that you just can't, you can't read anything. If you're a, particularly if you're a woman, you can't, you're not allowed to learn to read. To teach someone to read is a crime. That is utter insanity. It just seems crazy to me that is that, that is able to actually sustain itself, that a system that absurd is able to still survive in this day and age. But the internet and Bitcoin is truly beginning to change this. That technology opens things up in a way that is incredibly hard to shut back down. Incredibly difficult to turn back off. That's why we use the analogy Pandora's box. Once you open that thing up, it's, you, don't put, you, know, you don't put the cat back in the bag. You know, one of my, one of my favorite quotes in this whole thing, it just kind of caught me out because this is, this is it about Bitcoin. Right? The, the idea of independence, censorship, resistance, and sovereignty. 
There's a quote that says, perhaps most powerfully, Bitcoin could not discriminate by gender. Despite the 2013 crash, the technology was too interesting to ignore. Perhaps most powerfully, Bitcoin could not discriminate. It does not have the power. It does not have the capacity. It cannot know or care about who is using it, where they are born, what color of their skin, what gender, what they're allowed to learn because of religion A, B, or C. It does not matter. Bitcoin doesn't give a shit. Its keys are not less secure if you are black or Asian or white or whatever than if you are something else or if you are Islamic versus Christian. The keys are the keys. The transaction is the transaction. The system is the system and we all run nodes to prove that it does not and cannot care about, know or care about any of the other stupid differences that may otherwise put us at odds. It is property without the possibility of prejudice. You know, when Roya was leaving and they talked about escaping and they had, you know, they lost a lot of their belongings, you know, thieves stole, the, one of their boats crashed. Excuse me, that, that wasn't Roya, that was Farzan. That was um, uh, Layla, Layla Farzan. But in that situation, essentially the only substantial thing of value that was sustained on the other end of that journey was the Bitcoin. In fact, it made more sense to essentially not carry any of that other valuable stuff, any of the other cash or the jewels or anything like that, because the risk of losing it was so high when if the entire focus was to turn all of that value into Bitcoin to get to escape the country, to get out of, get out from under this tyranny, she would have been even better off and she didn't have to hide it in a piece of paper. She could have memorized 24 words or 12 words, depending on the seed standard, and walked out without anything and still have had her money. And Roya is right. That is, that's not just a new technology. That's not just like a benefit. That is truly revolutionary. That changes everything. It dematerializes wealth, taking as much as can be placed out of the reach of violence. Now, it's not perfect. You can always hurt people and, you know, demand that they get them. Privacy is still an important part of this whole, uh, this whole equation. But how many, how many years or decades of a head start is it to be able to leave a country when, when everybody else who's walking alongside you leaves with nothing but the clothes on their back and you leave with $20,000, $30,000 in value. You know, wealth is compounding. So when you have $1 and you make 50% or 100% on that, you get $2. And you get $3, $6, you know, $10, et cetera, et cetera. It's very, very slow. But, when, but you have that same compounding effect when you have that much more capital to start from, and when you, when you know how to make that capital, when you know how to turn $1 into $2, you know how to turn $20,000 into $40,000. Same principle applies. The difference is, how long is it going to take you to build up to $20,000? Uh, 
to that. That's why, you know, wealth and long-term success, I've always felt like is a war of attrition is that you keep pushing, you keep pushing, you figure out how to make every step forward slightly better than your last step. One, one extra step or one, one dollar more efficient, whatever it is, than your past. And it builds on itself. Imagine that you could be in a place, you could have a technology that essentially prevents from ever fully having to start over again because of an incompetent, corrupt, totalitarian government, which is essentially all of them. On a long enough time scale, that's what all of them are. You could end that reset function and you could make it so that you can protect, you know, 10%, 50%, 90% of your wealth from that ultimate collapse, from that ultimate political corruption that always evolves? And what does that do to even stem the corruption itself? To stem the power of those who, who end up destroying your currency or your society? What happens if they just don't even have a currency? What happens if they're forced to use Bitcoin? They're forced to live in a world where they simply don't have that level of control over people. Like, that doesn't seem like a lot to ask for. Like, when, you know, people will, like, I'll, I'll talk about this stuff and people will be like, oh, that's unrealistic. It's like, bullshit, that's unrealistic. Bullshit. You live in a horrible world if you think that's unrealistic. That should be a given. That should be the default. And I don't care if it's not practical right at this moment. I'm going to pretend it is because what in the hell are we doing wasting our time not working on this if it is a possible future I, we, I demand that it is a possible future. There is no way that we can't get there and treat each other like basic fucking human beings. That does not, that is not much to ask for in the world. And if there's a technology or some sort of system that we could use, just getting out nodes for, for the internet and teaching people how to use a Bitcoin wallet and actually having a secure decentralized money, if that has even a ghost of a slight possible 1% chance of actually taking us closer to that world, I should be ashamed of doing anything else. Of being complacent and just saying, oh no, that's the way the world is. That's the way the world is. Women can't read in Afghanistan. Sorry. There's so much to build. There's so much to build. And it's funny how much just education, <laughs> like just what Roya is doing in the the... DCF, the yeah, Digital Citizen Fund, I think that's what it was called. It just, just pure education. Just telling people about it. Explaining them how to use it. Uh, you know, setting them up the first wallet. Like, that's a huge hurdle. It really is. And when you give somebody that avenue, when you teach them how to, you know, to connect to, you know, set up their own, set up their own, like, Wi-Fi or a mesh node or whatever it is, you know, depending on where you are and what's actually available to this person. But just showing them how to get that extra one piece, one little piece of sovereignty. Access to information is so unbelievably critical. You know, when I was going down the Austrian economics and kind of libertarian-esque, you know, rabbit hole before I found Bitcoin, that was what was drawing me back to the internet. I had always thought, oh, it was so cool that I could just download a, a music file or a song that I liked for free and ha ha ha, you know, middle finger to the big uh, record labels. It was just a toy. It was just something that was fun and 
I was a teenager, so ha ha ha, I stuck it to the man. But I did not realize how powerful that single action truly could be to someone who didn't have the right to read a book. Maybe I used it cheaply. Maybe I used it like a toy. But what I was sitting in front of was a revolution. I was sitting in front of a network of information that was incredibly difficult to stop. A means of connecting to other people and sharing ideas that was almost limitless in capacity and connectivity, the way to actually connect. And then the smartphone revolution has exploded this in such a, like a whole you know, tenfold expansion as to how many people can access and how easy the default, the, the individual barrier. You can get a smartphone, a straight-up smartphone with a touchscreen and stuff for like 10 bucks, 15 bucks now. And entire continents are skipping over physical hard, hardware, like hard lines, like fiber optic cable and broadband internet, and they're skipping straight to cellular. That doesn't just change how many people are on Twitter. That changes billions of lives. It changes everything about how we can interact, about what we can learn, how quickly we can learn, and how easily we can sustain and defend ourselves against external forces, against, against a government that wants to shut all this stuff down, to, that wants to re-implement something that says, you can't read A, B, or C. Like, well, you know, once upon a time I could download a music file illegally, but now I can download a book illegally. Now I can learn about a different religion, and there's just not a whole lot that you can do about it. Now I can be my own bank. Now I can hold my own wealth. Sure, you can always come hurt me, but you have to come to me directly. You can't go to my bank or the regulator and shut down not only mine, but millions of other accounts instantly at the behest of a phone call to some compliant, cowardly bank. You have to go to every last one of those million customers. You have to find them, you have to know how much they have, and you have to take the funds from them directly because they are the ones who control it. There is no center to take over. That changes everything. When information and wealth become unstoppable, so does freedom. It's going to be a really, really messy road getting there. But I, I think that future is there. I think that's where we are headed. And I think all we have to do is not give up. And thank whatever God you worship for people like Roya fighting to make it happen in the darker corners of the world. Because it took all of 20 minutes for Western Union and MoneyGram to bail the hell out of there and leave everybody holding the bag. Anyway, I guess we'll close this one out. It's late already. Been recording for a long time today. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Thank you to Alex Gladstein. Uh, thank you to Roya um, for this piece and this story and everything that they are doing to help push this forward. It's, it's remarkable to hear these stories from all corners of the earth. Um, you know, with people doing this everywhere, when 1% of the world is fighting for freedom in every corner of the world, 
man, I just think, I think we got a, I think we got a wave that we cannot let die down. There's an opportunity here that just seems so freaking lucky that it seems, that it seems impossible that we're even here. The more I learn about the way the world actually works, it's depressing. But the more I see, the more I learn those things, the more I see just how important and impactful a, a system like Bitcoin truly is. It's the foundation. It doesn't fix everything. It doesn't fix everything. But it is the foundation that allows us to begin to fix things that have always been thought of as unfixable. So. We'll close that there. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, thank you to uh, Shift Crypto and the Bitbox O2 hardware wallet. Easily and securely store your coins. Uh, hardware wallet is key to being Bitcoin sovereign. And Swan Bitcoin and the automatic Bitcoin savings plan. You know, DCA is going to level out that price. You know, when Roya had to deal with that 2013 crash, if we can get every freaking Bitcoiner in the world buying $100 a week, that, ne that doesn't happen anymore. We level that price out and those horrible price crashes go away. Swan Bitcoin is how you start that today. SwanBitcoin.com slash guy. <laughs> Thanks to our awesome sponsors for keeping this show alive. Thank you to John Carvalho for donating his mic. I love this thing. It sounds amazing. And uh, I can't believe that I've procrastinated so long on getting an SM7B. But I'm glad I did because now I got John Carvalho's and it's covered in cool-ass Bitcoin stickers. <laughs> Thanks, dude, so much for this. And uh, I got to get back to, I got to, you know, I think I'm going to record a little bit more for uh, Heading to Sleep. Thank you all so much for listening. I love you all. This is Bitcoin Audible. This is my passion project and it means the world to me that I am somehow able to do this full-time because of you guys. I'm not going anywhere, so don't forget to subscribe. And until next time, everybody, take it easy, guys. This has been Bitcoin Audible, a 111 production. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.